You're listening to TIP. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? So this is our second part interview with Jim Rickards. If you missed the first episode, I highly recommend that you go back to the previous episode and listen to it. Quick background on Jim if you haven't listened to our first episode. Jim is a graduate of Johns Hopkins University. He has a doctorate from Penn. He also went to New York University School of Law. He's written multiple New York Times bestselling books, and he's one of our most popular guests on the show because of his comments about the Federal Reserve, different ideas about macro, and where he sees the general economy going. In this episode, we will have a very detailed discussion about currencies. In a world where everyone seems to be bare on the euro, we'll talk about why Jim is bull and whether or not the euro might end up replacing the dollar. We'll also investigate if the world would be better off with a fixed exchange rate system, the way it used to be. And finally, we'll revisit the idea of replacing the current monetary system, as we know it, with gold and SDR, and why it seems to be a more and more popular solution. So, without further delay, we're going to jump right into this episode. So, if you guys are ready to do this, let's go ahead and hop to it. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. So Jim, I would like to kick off the second part of our conversation with a discussion about currencies, specifically about the Chinese yuan. And in international comparison, it's actually a very small currency. That being said, China has gradually asked the trading partners to sell their transactions in yuan as opposed to USD. Do you see this as a long-term strategic move to support a yuan-based bond market? And if you do, is it really just the first step in a much bigger global plan for the currency? I think the answer is yes. I mean, we all know uh, we're students of Chinese history and Chinese culture, and we know that they are the ultimate long-term thinkers. You know, one of my favorite quotes was from a conversation between Joe and Lai and Henry Kissinger in the 1970s when Kissinger was over there secretly preparing the way for Nixon to go to China. And, uh, you know, it's so two pretty big brains, uh, intellectuals. And Henry Kissinger asked Joe and Lai what he thought about the French Revolution. And Joe turned and said, too soon to tell. In other words, 200 years was not long enough to see how things really play out. So that's the Chinese mentality. So, yeah, there's no doubt that China is the second largest economy in the world. It's the fastest growing major economy in the world. They do have hegemonic ambitions in uh, Western Pacific, East Asia. We all know what's going on in the South China Sea. They're expanding their periphery. They're making some very audacious plays. I mean, one thing I think is not that well appreciated. Think of the major rivers in Southeast Asia the Mekong River, the Irrawaddy River. There are a number of them throughout Myanmar and Thailand, Malaysia. All those major rivers, they have their headwaters in Tibet, which is controlled by China. China is building a series of major dams at the headwaters of those rivers, which means that in the not-too-distant future, when China can look to South Asia and say, you guys want water? You know, toe the line. In other words, they can literally cut off the water supply to all Southeast Asia by just stopping up these dams and building reservoirs. So that's the kind of long-term thinking and really hegemonic type of plays that the Chinese are making. So with that said, there's no doubt that they're applying that to the currency. Now, they're not even close to having the yuan as a reserve currency. 
And here's why. Here's what may be their biggest impediment and why they may never get there. What makes a reserve currency? I mean, it's sort of, yeah, the dollar is 80% of global payments, it's 60% of global reserves. It's like, why do the letters on the keyboard say what they say? Well, the answer is once upon a time, somebody laid them out that way and everyone learned and they never want to change it because we all learned a certain kind of keyboard and nobody wants to relearn it. So there is this first mover advantage. There is this, you know, this kind of inertia that once you get this critical mass, you tend to keep it. And that certainly applies to the U.S. dollar. But the key is the bond market. In other words, what is a country's reserves? Well, it just means they had trading partners and they ran a surplus. And so, you know, if you make $50,000 a year and you spend 40000 in, you know, taxes and rent and car payments and shopping, and you have 10000 left over when you put it in the bank, those are your savings. Well, it's no different for a country. If you sell goods to the rest of the world and you buy them and you sell more than you buy, you're going to have a surplus and you build up the surplus. So the question is, what do you do with the surplus? If you're a country, you can't stick it under your mattress. You have to invest it somewhere. There aren't too many markets in the world capable of absorbing those kind of inflows. But the one that is, is the U.S. Treasury market. And so people invest in U.S. dollars, not because they love dollars, not because they think the U.S. government's doing everything right, but simply because there's nowhere else to put the money. And we do have a lot of things going for us. So before the yuan is ever a reserve currency, they're going to have to build up a bond market because if you trade with China and you get yuan, you don't want the yuan unless you have something to invest in. And right now, there is no Chinese sovereign bond market to speak of. I mean, it's a small market, but it's not just a question of issuing bonds. You have to issue bonds in all maturity. So you have a yield curve. We have a 30-day bill and we have a 30-year bond and everything in between. You can buy a two-year note, a five-year note, a 10-year note, et cetera. So you need all those maturities. You need dealers. We have a system of primary dealers who make two-way markets. And if you don't make a two-way market, the Fed kicks you out of the club. And they're very credit-worthy dealers. They're all the biggest banks. You need settlement and clearance. You need a clearinghouse. You need a wire transfer system. And you need a repo market so I can finance my positions. You need futures and options so I can hedge my positions. So you need all this stuff. So where are the futures, the options, the derivatives, the repo, the settlement, the clearance? You know, all the things you need to have a bond market. Well, none of them exist. None of them exist. They're all there in primitive form. But this will take at least 10 years, perhaps 20 years to build. And the one thing above all, I just gave you a long list of things you need to have a big enough bond market to be a reserve currency. The one thing above all is the rule of law. China's are communists. I mean, it's a communist society. They may pretend to have a rule of law, but if the leader wakes up one day and wants to change it, then it gets changed. You know, ask Bo uh, Lai about the rule of law. I mean, we have this guy disappeared. He's like Napoleon, the godfather. You know, you won't see him no more. So they use firing squads in China. They confiscate property left and right. It's an utterly corrupt society. There's no recourse. There's no court system. Again, not the way we would recognize it. So the only countries in the world that have really good rule of law, you know, certainly the UK, the US. However, there are two other alternatives to the US dollar in play, and we've talked about them on this show before, which are gold and SDRs. SDR being the special drawing, right? That's the IMF world money. Now, El Arian, he's about as elite as you can get in terms of the global monetary elites. He worked at the IMF and he's, I think, chief strategist for Allianz, one of the biggest insurance companies in the world, and was the like number two guy at PIMCO for all those years. And he's on various committees. He's, he's a Davos man. He's about as plugged in as you can get. And it was about the SDR. It was kind of like, hey, is the time right for the SDRs? That's interesting. The IMF spring meeting just concluded on Sunday. When I look at things like that, I say, oh, this, so the IMF just had their 
semi-annual meeting and the next day Alarian comes out with a pro SDR op-ed. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think there's something in the air. I'll leave it at that. And there are other things going on behind the scenes with the BRICS getting veto power at the IMF. That's going to take a year to play out, but that's already been agreed in principle and it's in the process of playing out. So, And the, the whole thing they did in uh, the summer of 2016, they came up with two kinds of SDRs. There's the SDRO and the SDRM. The SDRO is the official SDR. That's the one that the IMF issues. But the SDRM is, stands for market SDR. So they're encouraging private organizations to issue SDR bonds, create SDR liquidity and SDR yield curve. And this is what L. Aaron was talking about in the op-ed. But right on cue, the World Bank issued, I believe it's a $2 billion SDR denominated bond issue. It's not denominated in dollars. It's you buy one, you pay in SDRs, and it gets paid off in SDRs. Now you can convert them to dollars. Obviously, that's just a simple math problem. But so this is coming. The gold thing, again, we've talked about that at length. So my favorite central banker, there, there aren't too many central bankers who understand central banking, but one of them is Elvira Nabigalina, who's the head of the Central Bank of Russia. She totally gets it. And it's kind of interesting, you know, when the oil price collapsed in June 2014, that was pretty tough on Russia and their reserve, but they had all this dollar denominated debt for, you know, Gazprom and Rosneft and all these guys, but they weren't getting the dollars in the door because of the oil price collapse. And then Obama throws the sanctions on because of Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, and that made it worse. So their reserve position drew down from, well, use round numbers, from about $500 billion to $300 billion. And it was dropping precipitously. And you could almost say, huh, here comes Russia again with another foreign exchange reserve crisis. But the point being, throughout that foreign exchange crisis, they never stopped buying gold. And they bought 25 tons in March. So, of course, China, we know, is buying gold hand over fist and the largest mining output in the world. So my question is simple. Are China and Russia stupid or do they see something coming that most people don't? Well, they're not stupid. I've been to Moscow. I've been to Beijing, Shanghai, Nanjing. I've studied these people. I know I have friends in Russia and China. They're not stupid. They know exactly what they're doing. Americans don't get gold, but everyone else does. So that's the real, in a crisis we're either going to go to SDRs or gold. That, those are the real alternatives. Speaking of the next currency system, we talked about SDRs. We talked about gold, as you just said. If we are looking at the current monetary system we have, where the dollar right now is the most important reserve currency, it might seem for a lot of people like it's really going to be hard to change because that is what most people remember that a lot today. I read this very interesting book not too long ago. It was uh, written by you, Jim the death of money. And one of the very interesting thing I found from that, and it really surprised me, was that you were talking about the possibility of having Germany or the euro led by Germany to be the most important reserve currency by 2025 because of a number of factors. Could you please elaborate on that, especially in time where it seems like the entire world is bare on the euro? Well, you're right that the entire world is bearish on the euro, except me and a couple other people. And one of the reasons I said why the euro, you know, the yuan's not ready to be reserve currency. The Russian ruble's not ready to be reserve currency. SDRs and gold, those are more extreme solutions waiting in the wings in a panic. But let's just take the steady state and roll it out. So what's the real competitor to the dollar if there is one? And the answer is the euro, because the euro actually has the conditions I described. Now, it has a rule of law. It has banks, it has dealers, it has clearance and settlement, it has futures and options, it, it has all those things I mentioned. One thing it doesn't have is 
a bond market because the euro is a single currency with, I believe it's 19 members in the eurozone. And of course, I think the listeners know that the eurozone is not quite the same as the EU. There are countries in the EU that are not in the euro. So right now we're talking about just the countries in the euro, the eurozone, who their currency is printed by the European Central Bank. There's a German bond market. There's an Italian bond market. There's a Spanish bond market. There's a Netherlands bond market, but there is no euro bond market. And when I say euro bonds, I'm talking about a euro-denominated bond guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the Eurozone. All those members and the ECB get together and they back this bond. That bond does not exist. And until it does, it will be difficult for the euro to even give the dollar a good run for its money as a global reserve currency because of the reason we mentioned, which is you don't have the liquidity in the bond market. Yeah, you can buy bonds and you can buy Italian government debt. But of course, that's been extremely volatile because they don't have a common fiscal policy. They're just tiptoeing into common bank regulation. But you go back to, let's say, 2012, even earlier, when you know Joe Stiglitz and Paul Krugman and Norio Rubini were running around with their hair on fire saying, you know, the euro is coming to an end. Greece is going to be kicked out and Spain has to quit. And Go back to the Peseda and devalue the currency and lower the unit labor costs. There's going to be a northern tier and a southern tier. Remember all that? And I said, no, none of that's true. None of that is happening. The euro is sticking together. It's Hotel California. Nobody can check out. They will add members, which they have. When I started saying this, they had 16 members today. They have 19 members. We'll see if Scotland becomes the 20th. So they've really gone from strength to strength. And I've been very bullish on the euro. Now, I have a theory on why Americans don't understand the euro, because you can't the, the opinion I just expressed, you can't hear it anywhere because all you'll hear is the euro is a mess, right? It's because Americans get their information from the economists and the FT, but they know nothing about Europe. Those are London publications. They hate the euro. Everybody in England hates the euro, right? So if you're getting your information from the FT and the economists, it's like reading a Hillary campaign brochure trying to figure out if Trump's going to win. So you have to go to Germany. You have to go to Italy. You have to go to Spain. But one of the reasons I was bullish on the euro, I did an interview last Friday. I said, just go buy the euro right now. And of course, it's going from six to almost nine in one trading day. But I said, even if Le Pen wins or does better than expected, I didn't think that. But I said, if she does, she can't make the euro go away with a wave of her hand. All she said was, I'm going to have a referendum. So if she became the president of France, she can have a referendum, but she's going to lose the referendum because the polls show that 60% of the French people support the euro. And you go back to the spring of 2015, which was just about the height of the Greek debt crisis. I mean, it really looked like they were, that's as close as they ever came to kicking somebody out. And the people in Athens, they were ready to march on Berlin and burn the place down. I mean, they hated austerity. They hated Merkel. They hated Schäuble and the whole German financial establishment. But the polls showed that 60% of them favored the euro. So they kind of want it both ways. They, they want the euro, but they don't want the austerity. But the reason is they remember the drachma. The Italians remember the lira. The Spanish remember the peseta. Those were highly inflationary currencies. The governments used those currencies for decades to steal from everyday people, from savers, by inflation. And when they got the euro, they got price stability. So they love the euro. They may not like Merkel. They may not like Berlin and Brussels. They may not like austerity, but they love the euro and it's here to stay. But the big thing that's coming to get back to your question, Stig, about the reserve currency status, what they need is a common fiscal policy. Now, the, the rap on the euro has been, hey, you guys have a unified monetary policy, but you don't have a unified fiscal policy. So you got these Greeks running crazy deficits and, you know, et cetera. 
they're all borrowing in euros, pre-riding on the European Central Bank discipline, but not showing any fiscal discipline. So Merkel's running the show. Merkel will support a euro bond, provided that the members of the eurozone get their fiscal house in order and they establish a common fiscal authority. When you see that, when all of a sudden Greece can't just run any deficit they want, but they've got to run it by a unified, you know, basically think of it as a euro finance minister. That job does not exist today, but imagine it did. There's a euro finance minister who can tell the Greeks, sorry, you got to cut your spending. That doesn't work for us. Then Merkel will buy into the euro bond issue. And, but this is in Macron's platform. If you read Macron's platform, he said, I think we should have a European finance minister. So it's coming. I'm not saying next year, but it may be sooner than we think. When you get that and you get the euro bond, and there are more people in the eurozone than or the EU rather than the United States. I think, I think 430 million people and you know, a very large economy, obviously, and they're very well positioned vis-a-vis the Middle East and Russia's a natural trading partner. They've got so much going for them. And the big variable will be Chinese capital flows. The Chinese capital will start to flow into Europe once the Chinese are very conservative, they don't, they're very risk averse, and they see too much kind of funkiness around Europe. But as Europe gets this act together, which they are doing, the Chinese capital will flow in there, and there's a currency that could displace the dollar. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. In continuation of perhaps having the euro to replace the dollar and getting the fiscal policy in order and clearly also the monetary policy, which is somewhat united as is right now, there's this great quote by Mario Draghi, the president of the European Central Bank, 
where he's saying that the ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro. Now, you're also saying that the euro will persist. What do you think he means by that? Well, you know, I said earlier that most central bankers don't understand central banking. I gave uh, Vilda Nabiolina as an example of someone who does my other favorite central banker is Mario Draghi. And the reason is he also understands central banking. What Draghi understands is that central banks are actually completely impotent. This, they can't do anything. This idea that, I mean, they go through the motions, but it's just like the Wizard of Oz. It's just a pretense. Don't dare pull the curtain back, you know, because you'll see what a sham it all is. Draghi gets that. And so when you're in the position of perceived power, when you don't have much actual power, the best policy is to say little and do less. And that's Draghi. So you go over to the United States, you got these regional reserve bank presidents and members of the board of governors. Yeah. I think two weeks ago, there were 14 speeches in one week. I mean, it's like every single regional reserve bank president, Loretta Mester, Esther George, Eric Rosengren, Jim Bullard, you know, they were all giving speeches and yelling, they're all giving speeches. Draghi just keeps his mouth shut, which is really smart. But the one time he came out and said something, he said, whatever it takes. What did he mean by that? Probably doesn't even know, but it was just sort of a threat. It was like, oh, I don't want to mess with this guy. See, that's what I mean about, you know, he just kind of played close to the vest. So I thought it was very, very clever. It was psychological. The interesting thing about that, he didn't actually do anything. He said it, I believe it was June 2012. We can look it up. June 2012, at the height of the, close to the height of the European sovereign debt crisis, he said, the full quote was, I will do whatever it takes and I assure you it will be enough. That was the, the rest of the sentence. And the market's like, whoa, don't mess with this guy. But because his words were so effective, he didn't actually do anything. He didn't cut rates. He actually didn't raise rates at, at the time. It was months later, it was really into 2013 and later that he started the Euro QE and some of the other programs that they have today, which they're now trying to get out of. Didn't really work very well there either, but he bought a lot of time. That's my second favorite Draghi quote. My favorite Draghi quote was uh, he was giving a symposium at the Kennedy School up at Harvard. Uh, this is uh, about three years ago, three and a half years ago. And Tekoa De Silver, who's a journalist specializing in gold, somehow got a ticket and he lined up with the kids to ask a question because Draghi's there. He's like, yeah, take, take questions from the students. And uh, well, there, there were no false pretenses, but I'm sure Draghi thought he was talking to a Harvard student, probably didn't realize he was talking to a gold journalist. And Tekoa asked him about gold. And he, he said a very interesting thing. This was, there's a video of this. You can find it on YouTube. He said, well, you know, before I was head of the ECB, I was head of the Bank of Italy. And Italy is one of the largest holders of gold in the world. They have over 2,000 tons, which is a lot for the size of Italy. And he says, when I was governor of the Bank of Italy, I never sold a single ounce of gold because I thought it was a good hedge against the dollar. I almost fell off my chair when I heard that. I was like, whoa, you're the central banker. You're the guys who want us to believe that gold is not a monetary asset, that has no role in the monetary system, that it's a barbarous relic or whatever. And yet, as the central bank, head of the Central Bank of Italy, you said you never sold your gold because you wanted to hedge the dollar, by the way, which is smart. I would do the same thing, but I was very surprised to hear him say that. So Jim, I want to change gears just a bit and I want to open up a real broad question for you. If we look at the narratives, everyone's got a narrative in the market. What is a narrative that you're hearing today in the second quarter of 2017 that you think is just dead wrong? Uh, growth. I just think it's the opposite. But let me be more, let me be specific about that. So 
Trump wins. And, you know, in the wee hours of November 9th, literally two, three o'clock in the morning, as it was becoming clear that Trump was going to be the next president, you know, the stock market sold off. It was in Dow points. It was down 800 points. Gold was soaring. I thought that would happen, but I, and I thought it would reverse. I didn't know it would reverse in two hours. I thought it might reverse in the course of two days, but it did reverse in a matter of hours. And by the morning of November 9th, the stock market was back to even. And by the close of the first day, it was up. And then it never looked back. It went up, Dallas up 3,000 points from a, you know, round numbers from 18,000 to 21,000 since then. And the reason I thought it would, would go up after an initial dip was that, you know, during the campaign, Trump's behavior was so vulgar and so off-putting to so many, and nobody thought he would win. And I think you guys know I was running around the, in the weeks before saying he would win. The great thing about doing interviews like this is you get to save the audio clips. And so if you make a good or bad, but if you make a forecast and you're right, you can always go back and say, yeah, there it is. But I, I was doing TV interviews saying uh, Trump would win. But that was certainly unexpected. So the point is market participants, because they couldn't get past Trump's demeanor and his behavior, they never looked at his policies. And then suddenly when he wins, it's like, oh, well, what are his policies? Oh, he wants to cut taxes, reduce regulation, $1 trillion of infrastructure spending. What's not to like? So all of a sudden people are like, well, you know, if you're going to cut taxes and companies with domestic earnings, they're going to have higher earnings per share. So I got to bid up those stocks and infrastructure. I'll buy Caterpillar and John Deere. And if you're going to repeal Obamacare, I'll buy pharmaceuticals. And if you're going to repeal Dodd-Frank, I'll buy banks. And there was nothing not to like. I mean, every sector went up. But initially, gold in the bond market went down because, you know, the Trump reflation trade and expectation of higher interest rates and all that. And I watched it. And so the Dow Jones goes up 1,000 points in November based on the Trump tax policy. Then it goes up 1,000 points in December based on the Trump tax policy. And then it goes up a thousand points in January based on the Trump tax policy. And I thought to myself, you guys just went up three times on the same policy. I mean, he's not going to cut taxes three times. But going back to your question, Preston, about the narrative, the narrative in November was Trump's going to cut taxes. Okay, I got it. December, well, they leaked out a few details. And look at this. Okay, up another thousand points. January, oh, it's going to be in this State of the Union address. Boom, another thousand points. And, you know, it'll probably go up, you know, as we speak because they're going to announce some more details again. They still don't have a bill. I spent the first 10 years of my career as international tax counsel at Citibank. I got a graduate law degree in taxation. I know a little bit about the subject. The last time they did a big overhaul of the Internal Revenue Code was 1986. The time before that was 1954. And the time before that was 1939. In other words, these things happen every 30 or 40 years. They're really hard to do. And the idea that they're just going to like bang through something is nonsense. But anyway, the stock market went up based on that and, and a few other things. But let's look at the reality. So first of all, the infrastructure bill is nowhere to be seen. The most recent is going from a trillion dollars to 400 billion. Most of that is not deficit spending. It's going to be public-private partnerships. And if you're going to use public bonds to finance it, you're going to have to pay the bonds, which means tolls. So, you know, bridge tolls, tunnel tolls, airport user fees, et cetera. I'm not saying we don't need the infrastructure. I'm all for the infrastructure, but you're not getting it for free. And you got to put all those tolls on everybody. That's the kind of tax. That's the tax increase. The Congress has made it very clear that any tax cuts have to be revenue neutral. So if Trump wants to take, they come out today, they leak that they're going to cut corporate tax from 35% to 15%. They want to cut the individual tax from 39% to 33% roughly. 
that sounds good, but where are you going to get the money? I mean, what, you're going to have to raise somewhere else. And whether it's the BAT, which I doubt, whether it's the VAT, the value added tax, which I, I do believe is coming, or getting rid of the deduction on home mortgage interest, getting rid of the deduction for corporate interest expense, you know, et cetera. There are a lot of ways to do it, but they all represent tax increases to somebody. So all you're really doing, you're cutting taxes on one group and you're raising taxes on another group and you're keeping it revenue neutral. Hard to see where the stimulus comes from. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I mean, just to take that a step further, who benefits from a personal tax cut from 39% to 33%? Well, rich people. I mean, you got to be making, you know, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year or more to get that tax benefit. If they slap on a value added tax, who pays? The little guy. It's a sales tax. Value added tax is a fancy name for a sales tax, right? So the income tax cut. Benefits the people with the lowest marginal propensity to consume. Words, if you're that rich, I'm well, you already got everything you want. The point being, you're not going to spend more, but the guy with the value added tax, that's coming out of his pocket. He's got to spend a little less at, you know, Wendy's or a little less at the gas station because he's paying more for whatever when he, when he shops at, at Walmart. So your tax plan is A, revenue neutral, which means no stimulus and B, regressive in the sense that you're rewarding the people who don't spend and you're hurting the people who do. So I don't see where the stimulus comes from that. So the infrastructure thing looks like a chimera, a unicorn. I mean, that's not happening. The tax bill might have, oh, by the way, two other effects. One is, remember I said the stock market went up in November and December? Well, that's because they thought we'd get a tax bill in 2017. Well, now the earliest they can pass this thing is kind of November, November, December, which means the earliest effective date is going to be January 1st, 2018. So you have a whole year of earnings. Uh, increases at the stock market price then that just disappeared well has the stock market corrected for that no because to me it looks a little bit like a bubble it goes up it stays up because it's a bubble my point being they price the stimulus they're not going to get they priced in timing they're not going to get they priced in infrastructure they're not going to get they haven't repriced that is to say the market hasn't come down and then combine that with what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast with the fed tightening into weakness and the natural deflationary vectors demographic debt deleveraging and technology you have a recipe for a recession. So the big miss, uh, Preston, I would say, is that there's this growth reflation narrative out there that I'm kind of taking the other side of that. Very, very thoughtful. Jim, in your book, The Death of Money, you discuss fixed exchange rates. And if you read a typical textbook about fixed exchange rates, it would typically highlight the advantage of limiting speculation and providing a stable trading system. Well, I will also say that you need to be cautious about the inflexibility your central bank would have since you can no longer incentivize growth, which we talked about before, for instance, by lowering the interest rate. So could you please provide us with, say, two cases on an economy who will benefit and not benefit, respectively, from such an exchange rate regime? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. 
An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joints' range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. Well, it's a great question, Sig. The world needs to go back to fixed exchange rates of some kind. I mean, there are a lot of ways you can structure it. Why do we have floating exchange rates? Because we didn't, you know, from 1870 to 1914, the world was on what's called the classical gold standard. By the way, at that time, the U.S. had no central bank. People were surprised that, oh, it was a time we didn't have a central bank. Well, from 1835 to 1913, no, we did not have a central bank. And there was no IMF. Believe it or not, the world got along fine without the IMF. So that was the classical gold standard. Now, there was no supervising authority. What It was a voluntary system. A country would say, hey, I'm going to peg my currency to gold at this rate. And I'm going to defend it at that rate. And if I want to deficit with you and you want to show up with my currency and get the gold, I have to give you the gold. And conversely, if I run a surplus with you and I take your money and I show up at your banks, you got to give me the gold. And gold moved back and forth as an equilibrating mechanism. When you started to run out of gold, you said, hey, I better, uh, you know, tighten my belt here a little bit and make my industry more efficient and lower my unit labor costs and get back to surplus. And if you were running big surpluses, you were supposed to expand the money supply and that would be inflationary. And that would, you know, so it was sort of self-equilibrating. It wasn't perfect by any means, but it's a pretty darn good system with nobody in charge. But they were fixed exchange rates because if everyone pegs to gold, then by extension, just transit of law, you're pegged to each other. In the Bretton Woods in 1944, all they did, they took that system and they formalized it 
with a couple exceptions. One is that the only currency pegged to gold was the dollar and everyone else was pegged to the dollar. No surprise, we designed the system. So we, of course, put ourselves in the middle. Now, by extension, it's a fixed exchange rate system, but there was a little wiggle room. You could devalue against the dollar if you got IMF approval and blah, blah, blah. There was a whole, it was a process and it happened every now and then. But the one thing that couldn't happen was the U.S. dollar could not devalue against gold. And of course, that's exactly what happened in 1971. But what was the intellectual genesis of that? I mean, who was kind of whispering in Richard Nixon's ear in 1971, telling him that floating exchange rates were a good idea and fixed exchange rates were a bad idea? The answer is our friend Milton Friedman. And that opens the door to a very interesting backstory because Friedman was the author, not, well, not the author, but the leading exponent of what's called the quantity theory of money, which is a very simple identity. So basically, how much money is there? How fast is a turnover? And that equals nominal GDP, which has two parts, the price index and real output. And Friedman said, well, in a mature economy, real output you know, central tendency was about three and a half percent a year. And Friedman used to joke that we don't even need central banks because we can just take a computer and tell them to do what I just described. And now there's, of course, there's more to it than that. And I'm being a little glib, but uh, that was the basic idea. However, this ran into something else. And this is really the, the backbone of international economics from the great uh, Robert Mundell. And he and his uh, co-authors articulated this, I believe, in 1961 which is called the impossible trinity or the uh, sometimes called the trilemma. And what this says is the following. In international capital flows and international trade, there are three things you cannot have at the same time. You can have two out of three or one out of three, but you can't have all three. The three things you cannot have are an open capital account, a fixed exchange rate, and an independent monetary policy. Because if you have an open capital account, that means money can go in and out, right? And if you have a fixed exchange rate, that means you stand ready to exchange your money for other people's money at a set rate. But if you have a monetary policy that's independent of other central banks, then there's always going to be an arbitrage because your rate's going to be too high or too low compared to somebody else. So people are just going to suck your reserves dry or you're going to get massive inflows. There's going to be some imbalance. So what Mandel said is that you can have two out of three, but you can't have all three. So you can have an independent monetary policy and a fixed exchange rate if you close the capital account. Or you can have an open capital account and an independent monetary policy if you have a floating exchange rate. Or you can have an open capital account and a fixed exchange rate, but you've got to tie your monetary policy to somebody else. Kind of what China is doing right now, raising rates as the Fed raises rates. Okay, so there's the setup. There's Mundell's impossible trinity or trilemma. And here's Friedman's quantity theory of money. Now, what is Friedman saying to Nixon in 1971? Of course, this is Friedman thinking behind the curtain. So Friedman's thinking, well, we need an independent monetary policy. We need to be able to dial money supply up or down to grow the economy. We need what's called elastic money. That was the key word, elastic money. If we don't have that, then we don't have the ability to get out of recessions or cool down expansions, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that means you need an independent monetary policy. Now, obviously, everybody wanted an open capital account. The United States could not close the capital account. We weren't Russia. So Friedman, as an advocate for elastic money under the quantity theory of money, said, well, if I want an open capital account and I want an independent monetary policy, I have to have floating exchange rates. I can't have fixed exchange rates because 
Mandel says I can. Mandel was right. So Friedman had a bias to blow up the fixed exchange rate system, to blow up Bretton Woods, basically, and go to floating exchange rates so he could solve the trilemma and have the independent monetary policy he wanted to pursue his theories under the quantity theory of money. What's wrong with that? Well, everything Friedman thought was wrong. The whole, everything I just described, I spent 10 minutes describing an intellectual theoretical edifice. The whole thing comes tumbling down around one point. Velocity is not constant. But if velocity is not constant, and it is not constant because it's behavioral, it's because it depends how you and I feel. Like if you and I want to, we feel great and we want to go out Friday night and go to a restaurant and see our friends at the bar and drinks on us and spend money, that's one state of the world. But if we feel depressed or frugal or squeezed and we stay home and watch TV and we don't spend money, that's a different state of the world. Well, those are different kinds of velocities. Me going out and spending a lot of money and me staying home watching TV. I stay home and watch TV. My money has a velocity of zero. $4 trillion times zero is zero. In other words, you can have all the money in the world, but if you have no velocity, you have no economy. And so Friedman didn't get the fact, he thought people were kind of robots under like, you know, variations of efficient market theory and rational expectations. Friedman didn't quite get the fact that velocity was highly volatile based on psychological conditions. Because in fairness to Friedman, velocity empirically was constant from 1950 to 1980, which is a long time. And that was the main part of his working career. But if you look at data from the 1930s, or actually look at data in the last 20 years, velocity fell off a cliff in 1998 and it's been falling ever since. So the point being, once you say velocity is not constant, then the whole quantity theory of money goes out the window as a policy tool. Now, it's still interesting for thought experiments. I use it to help solve problems, but it's not going to guide you to policy. And therefore, if you don't need flexible money, then you can revisit the subject of fixed exchange rates. So to answer your question, Sig, you ask for examples. I would say there's no country that's better off with a floating exchange rate. The whole world will be better off with fixed exchange rates. We just have to bear the burdens and meet the responsibilities that come along with that. Because one thing Friedman did get right, he said there's no free lunch. In a way, Jim, isn't this what the whole cryptocurrency movement is trying to establish as far as fixing the monetary baseline so that it can't be manipulated in order to create this fixed medium of exchange? Is that what they're really trying to do with the movement? That's my opinion. It's part of it. I have a lot of reservation about Bitcoin. And look, I've, I've read all the original papers and I've studied it closely and I understand blockchain. I've been down to Tampa with U.S. Special Operations Command working on methods for interdicting Bitcoin flows used by the Islamic State. So I'm not a technophobe. I'm not a Neanderthal when it comes to this. But I have some serious reservations about Bitcoin, one of which is that, you know, it's never been through a business cycle. Bitcoin was invented in 2009. We have not had a recession or a panic since then. So how will it behave in panic conditions? Maybe just fine, but maybe not. So that's one one thing. But the other the other point I would make is that the idea that there's a maximum number of Bitcoins that can be ever be produced and they get progressively harder and more expensive so that momentum slows down and you need more processing power and all that. So, so, I mean, that's the protocol, but the Bitcoin community of developers and miners can get together and change those rules the same way Richard Nixon changed the rules on August 15th, 1971. So I'm not saying they will, I'm saying they could. So is it really any different than any other medium where you're relying on a fixed rule when it turns out your reliance is misplaced? So that's the second reservation I have. And then I have, I have others. 
but the thing is, Bitcoin floats. I mean, the, you know, the dollar Bitcoin, if you think of Bitcoin as a currency, it's a dollar Bitcoin cross rate, the same way there is with a dollar euro cross rate or a US dollar, Canadian dollar cross rate. So it has no more of an anchor. See, if somebody took the Bitcoin and said, we're going to fix it in terms of units of gold, you know, but so one Bitcoin equals a half ounce of gold or whatever it is. That would be interesting. How you enforce that, by the way, as a matter of law, a separate question. But my view is the first currency goes to gold will be the only currency in the world that anyone wants. So, Jim, when you say that and we think through the dynamics of that, isn't a country that would adopt gold and make that their pegged currency to gold, isn't that creating a deflationary environment for them so they're decentivized in order to do that? Not necessarily. That could be the result. But this whole question of getting the price rate, you know, the old expression, you hear it all the time. You can't have a gold standard because there's not enough gold in the world to support the money supply. Well, that's nonsense. I mean, there's always enough gold. It's just a question of price. So if you pick a deflationary price, yes, it could be extremely damaging, could put your country or by extension the world into a depression. That's absolutely right. So just pick a non-deflationary price. And of course, this was the blunder that Churchill made in 1925. He took the UK back to the gold standard at the wrong price. He went to the pre-World War I parity after the Bank of England had doubled the money supply to fight the war. So that wasn't going to work. You either had to double the price of gold or cut the money supply in half to reestablish the equilibrium. Well, by choosing the old price, they cut the money supply in half and threw England into a depression three years before the rest of the world. And Churchill later admitted that was the greatest blunder of his life. And so you can get it wrong. But the good news is that you don't need calculus. It's eighth grade math. You sit there, how much gold do I have? What's my money supply? What percentage backing do I think I need to stand up to the world? You know, 20%, 40%, 100%. And then do that math. And that will give you an applied non-deflationary price. And bingo, there you go. So you provide an example where it was priced wrong. And then would you say in 1933, they priced it correctly in order to reflate the U.S. economy? Would that be a... a Correct. Better- yeah, the U.S. did that in 1933. The U.K. did it in 1931. They, 1931, the U.K. reversed the blunder of 1925. And uh, the U.S. in 1933 took the price of gold from $20 an ounce to $35 an ounce. And that worked. That broke the back of deflation, stimulated inflation. And, and Roosevelt did not do it to reward gold holders. In fact, he was pretty clever. He confiscated all the gold before he did it. So the profits went to the treasury, not to the American people. But be that as it may, he wasn't trying to make gold more valuable. He was trying to create inflation. He wanted inflation in oil and cotton and wool and all the other commodities and corn. And it, and it worked got the U.S. economy out of a deflationary spiral. The U.S. economy grew fairly well, 33, 34, stock market went up. So it, it can work. And in today's world, you might take a one-time hyperinflationary hit, meaning that when you do this math I described, you might discover that your currency is worth 5% of what you think it is when you express it in terms of gold at today's price. But once you do it, you know, it makes some adjustments for retirees or people who or savers or people who might suffer the most, bondholders might lose, you know, too bad. But what you would be doing is putting your economy on a sound footing going forward. All right, Jim. So this is the last question and we want to give you an opportunity to talk about the relaunch of the death of money. So give our audience a, what's going on? Why are they relaunching the book? Sure. The death of money came out in 2014 uh, as a New York Times bestseller. And typically a publisher will bring the paperback maybe a year after the hardcover, maybe not at all depending on how they sell. But The Death of Money stayed in hardcover for three years. 
because I'm you know, happy to say it sold very well and found a very good audience. Now we've come out with the paperback edition, but we have a new preface that I wrote. So there's some new material in it. So if you don't have the book at all, get the paperback. Even if you do have the hardcover, you might want to pick up the paperback for the new material. The new material specifically relates to insider trading in advance of 9-11, a subject I covered in chapter one of The Death of Money. I talked about Project Prophecy at the CIA, where I was a co-project manager, and we worked on market price signals to detect terrorist attacks with a lot of success. This is all post 9-11 when we were kind of, you know, you pick up the pieces of that failure and then say, well, what can we learn? And one of the things we learned was that we could use market price signals to detect terrorist attacks. But after that came out, I put, you know, whatever I could say that wasn't classified, you know, we, we put in the book, but people read it. And then people started calling me. They came forward. They had their own stories. Top Wall Street traders, people at primary dealers, people who saw things that they knew were insider trading. They, they weren't terrorists. They weren't crooks. They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't realize until after the attack, looking back on trades the day before the attack, there was no other explanation than the fact that somebody knew. And, you know, candidly, people want to unburden themselves. One guy, just one of the top guys on Wall Street, just told me his story in tears. I mean, he just, he really just wanted to get it off his chest. So I put those stories in the book, not ones that I knew about at the time, but as I say, people came forward afterwards, and I've been able to include some of those stories in the new paperback edition. That sounds fascinating. So, you know, Stig and I have both read the original print that came out and just loved this book. Every book that you've come out with, Jim, has just been phenomenal. And Stig and I have read all of them. So we can't encourage our audience enough. Get out there, read Jim's material. If you haven't noticed yet, Jim's brilliant. If you haven't noticed that by now after two episodes and his writing is equally brilliant. And I guarantee you, you will really learn a lot going through his material. So Jim, thank you for your time. Always a pleasure. We really hope to have you on it on the show again in the future. So thanks for taking time out of your busy night here. Thank you. All right, guys. That was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Be